Please have Hebrews 6 open in front of you, and in particular that latter part of the chapter. And maybe you saw as we read this passage together that as you go through, there are two very different subjects and emphases, and they are in great contrast to each other. And so in the first part of Hebrews 6, there is one of the most sobering and serious and dreadful warning passages anywhere in the Word of God. And maybe you grasped as we read it just how awesome it actually is and how serious it is as we see. And it says that there are some people for whom it is impossible to renew to repentance because they crucify the Lord Jesus Christ themselves afresh. That's a great warning for us to examine our own hearts this morning. But then the second part of Hebrews 6 and what is in view this morning is the total opposite in character. It is no longer a, a warning passage, but it is one of great reassurance and great comfort as it points us to the security that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, the reality is, if we are believers this morning, you know, there is a struggle that takes place in our lives, and often it takes place, you know, more frequently than maybe we would care to admit. We're all inclined to doubt God at times. There are seasons in our lives when his promises and his word seems to, to drift from our minds, seems to have no engagement where our hearts seem so very cold to these things. And, you know, when, we, when we're in those seasons, you know, it's terrible really how, how little we take God, you know, at his word and how we take him seriously when we're reading and studying his word. And the reality is that we... We do dishonor him when we doubt him. But even the very best of believers has these sinful doubts at times and these great struggles. You know, you think of Peter, you know, the, the well-known example in the, the boat on the Sea of Galilee with the other disciples and the Lord Jesus appears to them and walks them on the water. And remember, Peter's there, he's eager, he's, he's enthusiastic, he wants to be with the Lord. And so he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you and, and come to you on the water. And so he, he gets out of the ship and, and by the power of Christ, he, he begins to walk on the waves. It's a, a remarkable thing. But then as he takes those strides on the water, suddenly he begins to pay attention more to the, the waves and, and the, the, the things that are around him and the swelling under his feet and his his faith begins to tremble and he, he begins to doubt and he begins to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me. And the Lord Jesus reaches out to save him. But notice what he says. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You know, it's a question that comes to us all. Why do we doubt the Lord? Why do we doubt him? And, you know, we have to confront our doubts and we need to realize that doubts never come from God. They never come from God. They come from the enemy. They come from our own sinful frailty. They don't come from him. You know, go right back to the beginning. Adam and Eve are in the garden. And then comes the enemy of souls, the devil. And how did he approach them? Genesis 3.1. Has God indeed said, has God said these things to you, undermining, casting doubt on what God had said? On his word and it's an old sin and sadly it's still with us very much today 
And whether it comes through liberalism or through those who say that they're Christians and yet demean the Bible, you know, the devil has his servants in, in many pulpits and churches across our land and beyond. You say, well, well, why would you say that? How could you say that? Well, they don't take the Bible as the word of God. They question its reliability. They encourage people to look to other things. They have doubts about its authenticity. And those doubts come from the enemy. You know, when the Lord Jesus was in the desert, the devil came to tempt him over those 40 days. Notice again how the enemy approaches. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, do this. If you are the Son of God, come down. If you are the Son of God, turn this into bread. If, 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 all the time, sowing doubt. Now, how did the Lord Jesus respond? Every time with that sure word of God. Every time. But you know, my dear friends, doubts are all too often there in our lives. And I want you to see this morning that God assures his own people of the sure truth of the gospel by which we are saved. Our gracious God loves to give that comfort and that assurance to his children. Doubts don't come from him. He desires all who trust in the Lord Jesus, all who are his, to be confident in his grace, to be confident in his purpose, to be assured if we are genuine believers. And that's what we find in our text, you know. We have this description of how God gave assurance of salvation to Abraham. It's not a random example because Abraham is the father of all believers in that spiritual sense. You know, he is that, that model, that example for us in how God dealt with him and therefore significant for all believers. You know, look at verse 17, and this is really where our focus lies this morning. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. So how does God reassure his people? In what ways does he give them confidence that they are safe? Now, when God uses this phrase here, the immutability, the unchanging nature of his counsel, he's referring there to the gospel. He's referring to Abraham's faith in the promises of God, Abraham believing God and being justified. And by grace, it is true for us if we are in Christ we are heirs of salvation. And in that spiritual sense, we are children of Abraham when we believe in the Savior. So the immutability, the unchanging nature of his counsel means that this gospel is rock solid, that it cannot fail, that it can't be changed, that his counsel is his salvation given to those who by gracious faith receive it Abraham being a prominent example. And notice that we're also told that the gospel is a promise. Verses 17 to 18, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. So there is this reference to the promise that God gives of everlasting life. Again, you know, you need to know this morning that God loves people to be saved. And he loves those who are saved to be reassured of that fact. You know, he doesn't love to keep his people in the dark. God loves to have people fully assured looking to him. That's why he gives us this promise. 
And the gospel is a promise that whosoever believes in Jesus shall have everlasting life. It is a promise, that's the way God comes to us, a promise of everlasting good. You know, in that way, God reassured Abraham. He said, Abraham, I will be to you a God. I will bless you. I will multiply. Now, that's true in terms of the Jewish people. And there are a million of Jews in the world today, those natural descendants of Abraham. But you know, true in terms of spiritual descendants, those who believe in the Savior, both Jew and Gentile. You know, and see also that God promised that he would be to him a God. In his incredible mercy and grace, God added further reassurance. So he, he makes this promise, but then God goes further. You know, there's an addition of a, a second reassurance, two immutable things, two unchanging things. The first is the promise, but then notice God confirmed it by an oath. You know, you've just sung that, by the way, in that lovely hymn. You know, what is an oath? Well, we understand that an oath is a very solemn promise or statement only to be made for very special reasons and to commit to a course of action. It's never done rashly or lightly, but in serious things on serious occasions. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer says that God Almighty himself has taken an oath. It is amazing that God has not only promised to believers that they shall be certainly saved, but he has given a double reassurance by confirming it with the promise and with an oath. God has sworn. Now, obviously, those things are put to us in ways that we can engage with and understand. But just think, you know, when you and I, if we were to take an oath, we would do it before the Lord because he is the absolute. There's no one greater than him. And so God is the end of all things. He's, he's higher than all things. He's greater than all. He is more exalted than all. He is sovereign over all. So when, if we dare take a solemn oath, we take that oath, we take it in the name of God. You know, when God makes an oath, he cannot swear by anything else because there is nothing greater than himself. And so he cannot swear by the sun or by the moon or by the angels because they are much beneath him. And so when God makes an oath to Abraham and to his people, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. His own honor is at stake. Look at verse 14. Surely, that's the oath, surely, blessing I will bless you. And he's not only giving us affirmation and confirmation of what he says he will do by giving us a promise, but he adds to the promise an oath. And these two immutable things, the oath and the promise, these are the things in which God cannot lie. He cannot lie. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you find it very difficult to say that you're a Christian. You know, you, you long to believe. You know, you, you've, you've cried out to the Lord to be saved and yet, you know, you're still struggling because you just think, well, how can I be sure? I want to say this to you. If you have truly placed your faith in Christ, then you must take the reassurance which God has given to all believers. If you have given your heart to Christ and you are looking to him and you are resting for salvation upon his finished work, if you know there is no one else who can save you but him, 
and you're looking to him, his finished work in life and death, his resurrection, then you must take to yourself this reassurance which God loves to give to believing sinners like you and me. The oath and the promise. Hebrews 8.10, I will be their God. They shall be my people. You know, doubts can so easily paralyze us. They can cause us to stagnate, to never move on with the Lord. You know, my dear friends, don't allow the enemy to hinder you, to prevent your progress and walk with the Lord. Go on pleading with the Lord to, to make personal to you these, these promises and the, the certification of his oath is certain affirmation to you who believe in the Lord. You say, well, well, how does it reassure me? How are these promises the, the reassurance to us? Well, be certain that God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. What he says in his word is true. God is the God of truth. It's one of the things that we say that God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot say anything which is untrue. You know, we're not like that. You know, there are times when we say things that are untrue. Sometimes we say them because we're, we're ignorant of the, the reality. Sometimes because we deliberately twist the truth and we lie. We've all been guilty of that. But God cannot lie. God is never untrue. God never twists the truth. God never mishandles the truth. And so his promises are sure and certain. You know, and an oath is more than a promise. And so the Lord intends us to see that not only has he promised to give this life to believers, but he has added this strengthening confirmation, certainly I will do it. Most definitely I will do it. He says, I engage myself as the great Jehovah to ensure that every promise that I make to you, I will fulfill to the uttermost when you put your trust in me. And there's no higher authority than God. And so he swears by himself. And as believers, if that's what we are this morning, we may rest on this bedrock of certainty. And it's wonderful because in a world that is so uncertain, here is the clarity and the foundation that we need. You know, the Lord Jesus, you know, he spoke, didn't he, of those who build on sand and those who build on the rock. You know, if we're in Christ, we're not building on sand like the world. We're upon that solid rock of truth. And the Lord Jesus spoke of the, the chasm of difference between the person who builds their life on sand and the one who builds on the rock. When the storms come and the house on the sand collapses, the house on the rock stands because the foundation is sure. You know, and so it's very simple. If people build on anything but a sound believing in Jesus Christ, they will come to nothing. But on the other hand, God will not lie. He will not falsify his promises. If we are trusting Christ this morning, then we are in a very secure position. And you know, it's so different from what this world offers. You know, maybe you've known that you can find friends in the world you know, and they seem to be right with you and say good things to you and, you know, they stand with you for a while. But in a moment, you find that all of a sudden they've turned against you and they slander you and they disappear. You know, Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus with a kiss. You know, there are people like that. One day shouting Hosanna and the next shouting crucify and it hurts. 
wounds us. And people are like that. And sometimes you get it in friendship. Sometimes you get it in a marriage. Promises of faithfulness are broken. And it's part of the sadness of this broken, sinful world. But friends, God will never falsify his promises. God will never lie. His word is true. And we can trust him. And that's why the Bible is vital. That's why we should be under the word of God. Everything that God says will come to pass. You know, following the fall in Genesis 3, God declared that there would be a savior who would bruise the serpent's head. And you know, Adam and Eve, they believed it. They were saved. And then in the fullness of time, the savior came just as had been promised. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, came from the excellent glory, fulfilling the word of God. And all the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning him are true. Our Lord was born in Bethlehem, just as the prophets had said. He's from the family of David, just as the prophets had said. Our Lord was crucified, exactly as the prophets had said. Not a bone of him was broken, just as the prophecies said. He was raised again on the third day. All his words fulfilled. And that's why people who dismiss the Bible without considering it are so foolish. You know, someone has calculated that for one person to fulfill all those prophecies works out at one in 10,022 billion. The Lord Jesus did it. All the promises of God in the past have come true. All the promises related to the future will yet come true. We can take God at his word. He said, well, well, why does God need to assure his people? You know, why, why does God need to assure his people by the oath and by the promise? You know, and again, it's so simple. We said it already because we're so slow to believe what God says. You know, remember Luke 24? Lord Jesus had risen again in great triumph and two men are on the road to Emmaus and they're cast down and they're talking about the Savior and how sad it was that he had been crucified and how all their hopes were now gone and then they met this stranger who asked them why they were so sad and they explained that they thought that Jesus of Nazareth you know he was their hope he was going to do some great things but he died and it was a tragedy and he began to ask some questions and draw them out and then he explained all the prophecies relating to him and it says how their hearts burn within them as the scriptures were explained and applied but what did the Lord Jesus say to them? O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, in all the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And after they, they saw who he was, they went straight to Jerusalem. They told the apostles, the Lord is risen. But they've been so slow to believe. You know, is there anyone here this morning, I ask myself, of whom it could be said with great love and great care, yet also a challenge and a touch of reproof. Why are you so slow to believe the word of God? Why are you so slow to believe the assurance that God gives to us? You know, he has confirmed his word by an oath and by a promise. You know, sometimes, you know, there are those who make a virtue of not believing the word of God. You say, what do you mean? Well, some would say, well, yes, I, I believe the Bible is true. I, be, I believe that it's God's word. But who am I to believe? You know, doubting what the word says of those who believe. It is not virtuous to say that we are so humble 
that we dare not presume on what God has said. You know, why would God give us these promises except for our good? You know, why did God say these things? But because he loves men and women to be saved and to be assured of his saving work. That's why he tells us these things. But that's the, the battle. The enemy wants to rob us of that assurance and that joy in the Lord Jesus. You know, even the best of Christians, they're slow to believe the promises of God. Let me give you another example. Acts 12. Peter had been arrested for preaching Jesus and he was in the Jerusalem prison. And so in response, the church had an urgent prayer meeting. And they brought their cries to the Lord for the release and the protection of Peter. And after a couple of hours, they hear a knock on the door. And a girl called Rhoda, she's by the door. And uh, she goes and she asks, well, who is there? And Peter says, it's me. And she's overjoyed and, and she runs to the gathered church and no doubt interrupts the church. And, and she says, he's here. I couldn't believe it. You know, they, they, they say, oh, it must be an angel or, or something. But when they opened the door, there he was. Their prayers answered. God had miraculously delivered him. Angels had been sent. The prison doors opened. Peter chains fallen off. He was free. It was so incredible that even that early church could not believe it. Even in that time, with all that was taking place, they could not believe the wonder of what God had done. It shows how slow we are to believe. And that's why God gives us his promises. To keep on reminding us and showing us and laying before us. I have saved you. I will keep you. I will not let you go. You know, may I remind you of the nature of the promises of God. 2 Peter 1.4 By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. You know, we, we come as sinners, maybe even the, the very worst, and yet the moment we are given to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in him and his death upon the cross and his saving work, all our sin is forgiven, and he promises that when we die, he will take us to glory, and that when the trumpet sounds at the end of time, he will raise us from the dead and bring our bodies in a glorious resurrected state to his eternal kingdom. God has promised this. He has sworn it by an oath. How much more can he assure us of it? Exceeding great and precious promises. You know, the Bible says that these promises, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him are men to the glory of God through us. In Christ, these promises are ours, and they are cast iron, they are solid gold, they are absolute truth. You know, what God promises is true, and he says to you, dearly beloved, those who believe, we will be with the Savior in glory. And though we may suffer for a little while now, you know, we have to suffer the unkindness of unbelievers. You know, the world doesn't like it if you follow Christ. And by the way, and tragically, if you're eager in following Christ, there'll be other believers who don't like it either. And they'll be unkind to you and misrepresent you and they'll say lies against you. You know, there are times, and maybe you've known it, when we can be lying in our beds and we think of the, the cruelty of people and maybe we've, we've wept tears now, I've been there myself. The Apostle Paul wept many times. The Lord Jesus wept. 
You can't be a believer in this world without tears. Few or many. But the promise is those tears will be wiped away. The Lord says. And when the Christian dies and leaves this world, these are the promises that will carry us home. And we believe them. We, we know them in part now, but one day we will know in fullness all these promises, as one of the, the old writers said, all these promises will come to meet us like old friends. And they'll take us to glory and they'll show us heaven and the, the new heaven and the new earth and the Savior and his throne and the Holy Ghost and his glory and the Father and his glory and all his saints. And these promises will say, take your place. Here is your inheritance by grace in Christ, reserved here for you with all the redeemed. These promises are all rock solid and true and certain. And you know, God's gracious promises and assurance, they are a help to us. Look at verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. And you say, well, who are the heirs of promise? Believers. It's you this morning if you believe in Jesus. All believers of all ages, we are the heirs of promise. And how do these promises, how does this oath help us? It gives us strong consolation. You say, well, what does that mean? It means rich comfort. I don't know if you ever got lost when you were little. There are a couple of occasions, I think, when I wandered off from my mum in a shopping centre or whatever, but... You know, one preacher uses that illustration. A little child, imagine them losing grip of their mother's hand and they get lost. And uh, in that moment, you know, they're crying so much and someone finds him and takes him to the customer service desk in a shop and an announcement is given out for the mother to come and get their little one. But, you know, he's inconsolable. He just wants his mum. His little world has, has been shaken and he, he, at that moment it seems as though there's no hope. But then the mother comes and the arms go out and they throw themselves into each other's arms in a, a wonderful hug. That's what we call strong consolation. You know, the child doesn't care about the shop or anything else anymore. You know, his mum is his world and he's safe in her arms. That's what the Christian will do. When we leave this present world, what consolation. We shall see Christ coming for us waiting for us in the glory, and we shall hurl ourselves into his arms, as it were, and he will embrace us. And the consolation of knowing that he loves us with an everlasting love, that he has drawn us and saved us and will be there forever with him. When Stephen was stoned, what did he look up and see? The Lord Jesus standing, ready to receive him. And more than that, notice it says, who have fled for refuge. What does it mean? It's referring to the fact that we have as believers fled to Christ. He is the city of refuge for all believers. He is that place of safety. And we have fled from the wrath of God. We have come to Christ. We are in the city of refuge and we are safely there now in this world. But it goes on, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. We've been able to lay hold of, of this hope, these precious promises. I don't know if you saw in the news recently, a man got into great difficulty in the River Ouse in North Yorkshire. And uh, he was struggling in the water and he couldn't get out. And do you know, there was loads of people on the side 
And what were they doing? They had their phones out and they were videoing him. And uh, the police came and uh, they issued a statement because they were so appalled at what they had seen. You know, how awful it was that people were filming the man struggling and they did nothing to help when there were these life rings literally an arm's length away from some of them. But you know, when a, a drowning man is thrown a life ring, what do they do? They grab it, you know, with both hands. We were drowning in the sea of our own sinfulness and wickedness and God in his mercy, he reaches down to us with this wonderful salvation in Christ and by grace we lay hold on Christ and we are saved. And this hope is the anchor of our souls. You know, an anchor saves the ship from being blown around in every direction and, and doubts and fears, they blow us about and, and we have plenty of those. We, we doubt this and we doubt that and we can be like a ship without an anchor blowing about at sea. But when we're given to lay hold on Christ, he is the anchor of our souls. And it anchors us in life. And despite all the storms, the anchor holds. Our hope is secure because of God's saving, infallible purpose. You know, Samuel Rutherford, our hope is not hung upon such an untwisted thread as I imagine so. Or it is likely. But the cable, the strong rope of our fastened anchor is the oath and the promise of him who is our eternal verity. And our salvation is fastened with God's own hand and Christ's own strength to the strong stake of God's unchangeable nature. And so this anchor is thrown upwards, as it were. It, it penetrates the heavens through the veil where our forerunner has entered. And he is the first one to get to that excellent glory. He is the first fruits and we, we follow on where he has gone. And he's waiting for us, longing for us to be with him. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know, he's already there. He's already entered. A high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know, the Bible says that the Lord Jesus is our beloved husband and when we put our trust in him, we know that he is ready to receive us, his, his precious bride into that home above, a, a house not built with hands, eternal in the heavens. And on the way in this world, we have ups and downs, we have fears and tears and trials and sorrows. But there he is. A priest forever, waiting till his people join him at the right hand of God, and then he will say, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You have loved me in this dark and evil world. You have testified to me by life and word in this dark and evil generation. Come, and I will receive you into everlasting mansions, and your hope and your faith will never be disappointed. If you're not a believer this morning, what hope do you have? Will your anchor hold in the day of God's judgment? I can tell you it won't. If you're looking anywhere but Jesus Christ, you're without hope. 
Only Jesus, knowing him and trusting him and believing him will give you a hope that nothing can break an anchor for your soul in the storms of life and that will lead you to that eternal home. And the promises of God to all believers, they are solid rock that cannot be moved. And so when the devil comes with his doubts, when we begin to question our, our own frailty, it's not about you. It's about him. It's about the Lord. And turn away from all of that and look to the Lord. Believe in this God, in this Savior, in these promises going forward, knowing that what he has said, he will do. And he will do it on the grandest scale and he will do it in your life. He has saved you. He will keep you. And we can be sure of it, friends. Confidence not in ourselves, but in Christ. Blessed be his name. Amen.